Our next speaker comes from a country that's hardly mar marginal of or of passing significance, either in the Arab world, the Middle East, the Islamic countries, or overall Arab-U.S. relations. Uh, many people are unaware of Egypt's strategic role in terms of the Suez Canal, uh, a rich culture and civilization in the land of the Nile, also the progenitor of Al-Azhar University, which not by accident or coincidence is the site, the venue that President Obama chose this past June the 4th uh, to give his still memorable address. And also the voice of the Arabs during the 1950s and 60s uh, was listened to. People were riveted to its message uh, coming from Egypt uh, for decades. And not uh, last nor least is the statistic that one out of four Arabs on this planet is an Egyptian. And we have the Deputy Chief of Mission of the Embassy of Egypt to the United States, Amar Ahmed Ramadan, to speak to us. Morning, everybody, and thank you. First, I would like to thank everybody who's involved in the Council uh, who has contributed to organizing this uh, event. I have participated in the past in, in such con uh, conferences. Uh, it's indeed the key annual event in Washington that brings uh, the issue of the U.S.-Arab relations into light and attracts uh, various perspectives on different aspects of the relationship. Uh, events like this one are essential if the understanding of the dynamics of the Arab world is to be improved, and I guess uh, Congressman Keith Allison shed some light on some of these issues uh, just a few, moment, few moments uh, ago. Let me start by stating that it would not be incorrect to say that the crux of the entire discussion of this conference revolves around the fact that the U.S. relationship with the Arab world is both essential and mutually beneficial. The intricate components that make up the relations are founded on common interests. Yet, it has become clear that the most fundamental element which immunes the relationship from turbulences is the tolerance to and the understanding of the unique realities of the region and the specific values that shape up its society. In that context, President Obama's speech to the Muslim world last June in Cairo brought enormous hope for transcending beyond years of missed opportunities. And even though a rigorous follow-up is needed to bring about the required change on the ground, the messages transmitted certainly constitute a first step in bridging gaps. The speech granted a long-awaited hope for a restoration of the historical and deep ties between the two societies on the basis of mutual respect, taking note of the unique realities of our societies. It was a message that reached out to all arenas of conflict with dialogue and reconciliation forming a new approach that attracted praise from not only Arabs and Muslims, but even by other societies and international partners who have been yearning for a new page in the relationship between the greater West and East. The Nobel Peace Prize is yet another testament of the significance of President Obama's new direction, hopefully paving the way for more accomplishments 
that would yield positive results in the region and contribute to the enhancement of U.S.-Arab ties. It is worthy to note what the President said with regard to this prize being an affirmation of American leadership on behalf of aspirations held by people in all nations. And we look forward to what he dubbed as a call to action to confront the common challenges of the 21st century. We are ready to engage and move forward as we witness change of mood inside the Beltway, a change that has to be reflected in policies and behavior by many stakeholders to correspond to the new hopes we all have for our relationship and its future. Meanwhile, it is worth to mention at the beginning that the volatility of the Middle East region stems from the nature of current conflicts being faced, underscoring the necessity to exert efforts by all international partners alongside the United States. The challenges that persist in the region today cannot be ignored and have long affected its economic and political advancement as well as social transformation. Tackling such challenges represents an important component that drives the U.S.-Arab relationship. I must note, though, that the problems of today in the region are a function of many unresolved issue, issues and injustices of the past. Needless to say, the Arab region and the wider Middle East have suffered from deeply abusive policies. For long years in the past, the region has been deformed by foreign influence, the creation of unnatural borders, devising policies that divide the society rather than uniting it, lack of equitable distribution of wealth and opportunity, and measures that induce fragmentation and division. More recently, the region has been weighed down by unresolved conflicts leading to a gradual rise in feelings of international injustice and mistrust, which in turn instilled despair that was manifested in fundamentalism then resort to violence at the local level. Such radical ideologies continue today to engulf many parts of the society in the region, diffusing among the least fortunate and vulnerable, and threaten to be exported elsewhere in the neighborhood and beyond. I will touch uh, briefly, since we won't have much of the time, on the, what I think is a possible ground for cooperation between the U.S. and the Arab world. That is on the level of domestic issues and challenges across the Arab world and the U.S. connection to it. The region faces internal challenges that relate to political and socioeconomic conditions. The commitment to dealing with such challenges derives from within, from the desire to reform and improve. Such actions are based on each country's priorities and the results of national consensus as well as the value structure defined by each nation's particular experiences. This is the reality. This is the reality of the region, be it on the macro or micro level. It is at the conference heading states old realities, which require, again, as the title shows, fresh visions. These visions are not beyond imaginations. At the general prospect laid down even by President Obama so early in his presidency, grants hope for such fresh visions, which recognize the particular particularities of our region. Having said that, it is also our responsibility as Arab states to continue to strive toward the achievements of, achievement of our developmental goals in the political as well as economic field, while focusing on promoting a greater linkage to the outside world and exerting all possible, possible efforts to elevate the quality of our human resources. Certainly, the U.S. can help the entire world and the Arab world through its regional policies that effectively take note of the realities on the ground.
Surely, fostering economic relations is indeed the most optimum way to cement bilateral relationship on the long run and produce a common sense of interest and attraction to what is an ideal understanding between societies. I guess I, I, I will stop here and maybe during the Q&A session we'll uh, touch on some of the points I wanted to. Thank you, Your Excellency. Uh, for reasons of, of time, uh, we have uh, but one question, but it's, it's an important one uh, because it has many different faces or implications in terms of the, the answer here. Uh, with regard to the following, uh, Egypt controls one of the borders into Gaza. Why does it not allow humanitarian supplies such as concrete and glass necessary for reconstruction to enter Gaza? And related to that, is it not also linked to the historical linkages between Hamas and the Muslim Brothers, and the Muslim Brothers having begun in 1929 under Hassan al-Banna in, uh, in Egypt, and that to work with Hamas would be interpreted by many in Egypt as encouraging the Muslim Brothers, which um, have been an ongoing concern to any Egyptian government for more than half a century. Thank you. I guess let me touch first on the, the first part of the question on the shipment or allowing shipments to, to move ahead through the Rafah crossing. First of all, the, the border has, let's say, two doors, one that we control and one that is controlled by, by the other side. As far as the other side is uh, concerned, you know that there has been an arrangement, trilateral arrangement to control that border that unfortunately is not uh, in place after Hamas uh, took over uh, Gaza. From our side, we're trying to secure our borders, and at the same time, we frequently open the borders uh, for movement of pers uh, personnel, especially those who would like to go outside to have treatment either in Egypt or, or beyond. This is being done almost uh, on quite monthly or, or even more than that, sometimes every two months. Uh, the border in Rafah is not intended uh, in the first place to be a crossing that is uh, uh, responsible or um, envisaged to be one of shipment, but rather of personnel. Other uh, crossings are the ones that are supposed to, to take care of the shipment of goods uh, through these uh, channels. As for the historical ties with uh, Hamas, uh, I, I didn't quite sure understand what the uh, The Muslim Brothers, the Ikhwan al-Muslimin in Egypt, and the uh, Hamas leadership, followership, membership, uh, identification with many of the leaders, principles, sure. causes of the Muslim Brothers. That to aid them to uh, provide these goods and services, which would make them look more credible, legitimate in the eyes of the people of Gaza, uh, would be seen as a reward, so to speak, for Hamas. And many in Egypt may interpret that as a green light for inspiring the Muslim Brothers in Egypt to be more um, active, insistent, or full of dissidents uh, than has been the case. I mean, we have to realize that after all, there are almost 1.5 or 1.3 people living in, in Gaza. Uh, it's hard to believe that all those are uh, Hamas uh, leaders or Hamas-oriented uh, individuals. 
so when we deal with the issue, we don't deal with it as Gaza is, belongs to Hamas per se, so we have to deal with Gaza as we are dealing with Hamas. There, there is quite distinction, and it's important also to realize the humanitarian aspect uh, in Hamas. It's true that uh, most, many actually uh, Palestinians, not just Hamas, but other Palestinians uh, have studied in Egypt and have lived in Egypt for quite some years. Some of them probably would have some sort of uh, relationship uh, or affection to, to the Muslim Brotherhood or other groups. That, that, that's uh, the reality. Okay. Uh, Your Excellency, in the interest of time, uh, we would uh, thank you uh, for coming because uh, Egypt is important and we did not want to have a conference like this without an Egyptian voice, an Egyptian perspective, uh, and also the context and background that you provided. Thank, thank you, sir. Thanks for inviting me.